0: Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty. Businesses around the world have found ways to harness its potential, like spotting inventory shortages before they happen, or supporting supply chain management. And it's very possible that your business could benefit from AI integration too. Unlock the potential of AI and discover even more possibilities with SAP Business AI. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
1: Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, we're focused on one of the most complicated problems of all, content moderation, If you're a Decoder listener, you know that content moderation seems to come up in almost every episode. The question of how platform companies decide what to leave up and what to take down is messy, controversial, and extremely political. And if something on the internet is messy, controversial, and political, you know that Facebook will be at the bleeding edge of it. Last year, the company announced it would start sending difficult moderation problems to a new entity it calls the Oversight Board. That's a committee made up of lawyers, politicians, and speech experts that rules on whether specific content takedowns on Facebook are appropriate or not. That board just got its first big test last week as it issued a decision about whether former President Trump's indefinite ban from Facebook platforms would stay in place. And the decision? Well, the decision was to kick it all back to Facebook. The board said Facebook didn't have an actual policy in place for it to review, and that Facebook should write one and send that back to the board in six months. In the meantime, Trump remains banned from the platform. So what does that all mean? What is the Facebook Oversight Board? What are its powers? And how is it even independent from Facebook itself? You've probably heard people call the board the Supreme Court of Facebook. Is that the right way to think about it? Will every platform require a moderation court like this in the future, or is this just another way for Facebook to exert influence over the internet? This is a big new experiment, and the Trump decision is a big moment for that experiment. To help figure it all out, I asked Kate Klonick, a law professor at St. John's University Law School, to join the show. Kate has been researching and studying the Oversight Board from the start. She embedded with the board as it was forming to write a definitive piece with the New Yorker called Inside the Making of Facebook's Supreme Court. Kate and I talked about what the board is and isn't, what its powers are, and what this Trump decision means for the board's authority in the future. And we talked a lot about what it means for private companies to have things that look and feel like legal systems. If you step back, it is bonkers to think that any company needs to fund something that looks like a Supreme Court. But Facebook is that big and that globally powerful. So here we are. One note, you're going to hear me mention a Supreme Court case called Marbury versus Madison. That's the very famous case from early in this country's history, where the Supreme Court basically gave itself the power to invalidate laws passed by Congress. Oh, and you might pick up that I sound nervous here and there. That is because I always, always get nervous talking to law professors. I feel like I'm back in my 1L days every time. So bear with me. Okay, Kate Klonick from St. John's University Law School. Here we go. Kate Klonick here, a law professor at St. John's University Law School. You are also one of the foremost chroniclers of Facebook's moderation efforts. Welcome to Decoder.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We're talking the day after the Facebook Oversight Board released a big decision about whether Facebook was correct to indefinitely ban Donald Trump from its platform. There's a lot of concepts in that sentence alone, let's start with the, the Facebook Oversight Board itself. You In February, you published a long piece of The New Yorker called Inside the Making of Facebook's Supreme Court, which detailed the process by which Facebook conceived of having an oversight board, literally the meetings and the software they used to create this board virtually during a pandemic. This decision feels like the first big moment for that board. What is the Facebook Oversight Board?
2: Yeah, we still don't know exactly. <laughs> I know it's like uh, the worst answer ever to, to turn out. But I think it's I think it's the right one. We can talk about how it's been talked about. And I think that that's going to lead us to kind of what we saw yesterday and how what we can kind of make of this opinion. So um, in November of 2018, Mark Zuckerberg announced that he was going to set up this, what had been kind of colloquially joked about and called like the Supreme Court of Facebook, this uh, idea that they were going to start running certain types of content moderation decisions. Once they had finished being appealed internally at Facebook, they would make it possible to appeal to an outside independent oversight board. And the question was, how the hell do you set that up? You have a pretty fundamental principal agent problem right off the bat. And then how do you set that up? What does it make you do? And how do you kind of make this work when when you're talking about public rights of freedom of expression and international human rights law, which is where the conversation was and still is to some degree, and you're talking about a private corporation, how do you make something have teeth? How do you make it legitimate? How do you make it independent? All of these questions were very open and on the table. And so about six months after that kind of announcement from Zuckerberg, I started following inside Facebook the government and strategic initiatives team, which was the team that had basically been tasked under Nick Clegg to come up with this solution to what exactly this board was going to be and how they were going to solve all of this, these institution building problems. And so I started following that and I ended up doing that for 18 months watching as they wrote their documents and figured out what they were going to do. And there's a lot of stuff to unpack just on what they how they did make decisions and so I'm happy to kind of go over the basic framework of how they solved the problem of independence because I think one of the biggest things that we kind of don't know about the board is what it is and like what it is indebted to for Facebook and what makes it plausibly independent.
1: Let's step back for one second. So Facebook is a huge company. They operate a massive platform, several massive platforms around the world. Their content moderation decisions have an enormous impact on people, on culture, on democracy. They wander into speech issues at a global scale where a team of people in the United States cannot plausibly understand it. Speech issues in other countries that Facebook runs into at scale. Some of those things... You brought up human rights law. Some of those things directly lead to horrible outcomes, like genocides, literally, with Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg is kind of unaccountable to the shareholders of Facebook, the corporate structure. So it's a very unique company. He owns a majority of the voting shares, so he fundamentally cannot be removed as CEO. And so his solution is, I'm going to set up a different thing to hold Facebook accountable and to review our content moderation decisions. And it sounds like what you're saying the first problem is, how do you create that thing to be independent, and how do you pay for it in a way that maintains its independence?
2: Yes, exactly.
1: How did they solve that problem?
2: Well, that problem was kind of interesting, so they decided to set up a Delaware Trust Corporation. They set up a Delaware Trust Corporation in October of 2019, and then the next day they arranged for that Trust Corporation to serve the Oversight Board LLC, which is a limited liability corporation. The entire purpose of the trustees and the entire purpose of the trust was to administer a $130 million irrevocable grant that Facebook gave and then snipped the purse strings from to this trust. It's not an endowment. This is like an important distinction because they cannot actually, the trustees can't invest the money. There's no investment committee. It's specifically not allowed. It's not enough money to be able to endow it. It is enough money to probably have it run for five to six years. And then it is contemplated that there will be an endowment. So there is the question of like, well, if they really do go at Facebook and really do hold Facebook accountable in some way, they are running the risk of like having their funding cut off. But in the short term, six years feels like a long time, and this is what they were charged to do. So we're seeing what the board is doing. But this is basically how it works. All of the board members in the administration are basically employees of the LLC, and which is Itself controlled by the trustees. So that's kind of like, that's how this kind of breaks down from a business um, standpoint. And it's a fairly elegant solution. The trust documents are pretty interesting to read if you're into that kind of thing, (laughs) which I wasn't, but I I had to do anyway. So I think there actually is for right now, for the next five to six years, I think there is a fair amount of financial independence. We'll see what happens four years down the road.
1: Who's on the oversight board? We keep talking about it like it's a court. I don't know if that's correct. I want to get there, but- They have some people who are making decisions and writing opinions and disagreeing. Who are those people?
2: Right now, the board is four co-chairs with a total of 20 members that all are basically hearing cases related to user appeals that come out of Facebook on content moderation or things that Facebook itself kicks to the board to review, like the Trump suspension. So those kind of 20 individuals are, it's a pretty illustrious group of people. There's a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, former prime minister of Denmark, former editor-in-chief of The Guardian, former circuit court judge, a former Supreme Court clerk and Columbia law professor, not to mention a ton of other people that are just experts in human rights law and lawyers and freedom of expression in their own right. So it's a pretty well-staffed group that has a lot of experience both with institution building and freedom of expression and international human rights.
1: So for the Trump decision, did all of them hear it in vote or was it a small group? I mean, normal courts, you go to the appeals court, they have a lot of judges, but first three of them hear it, right?
2: Yeah, usually. So that's that's precisely what happens here. So the process around hearing cases, is a five-person randomly selected anonymous panel hears the case, and then right now how they basically have... This working, because some of these things were not laid out in the bylaws and it's up to the board to decide them on its own, uh, is basically that they right now the panel is writing up a draft of whatever it is that they determine is the right solution to the problem after they kind of arrange, collect facts and ask people for more opinions and read all the briefs and everything else. And then they start circulating that and a majority of the full board uh, has to approve the final decision. and. That was basically exactly how it worked for the Trump case.
1: One thing that strikes me about the Trump decision is that it is anonymous. There's frequent reference to the minority and how the minority would have judged things differently. We don't know who's in the minority. We don't know how big the minority is.
2: We don't know how big, but it can't be bigger than nine people, right? Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, but that's, that's a pretty big range from yeah. one to to nine. And then that's all fine. So it's pretty anonymous. And then the members of the oversight board are, like, out in the world. They're doing interviews with Axios. They're doing interviews at the Aspen Institute. They're publishing their own blog posts about this decision. I just can't quite understand what part of it is supposed to be anonymous and why and what part of this is really public.
2: Yeah, no one knows. That's a great question. All day yesterday, I was, like, kind of a little shocked. All of the different types of thoughts and collective pronouns uh, that were being used <laughs> when people were talking. One of the main reasons to have anonymity on a panel like this is that anonymity gives you a certain amount of intellectual privacy. You know, the idea that you're not going to be publicly shamed for being in the minority is pretty key. The other thing is that the these people that are on the board are all over the world and a lot of the cases that they are touching on possibly pose really very real security risks to them should it, their names be attached to kind of the outcomes. And so that was another consideration for when all of this was being discussed about whether they should be anonymous or not. What we didn't know was whether there were going to be dissents. And so what's super interesting here is that there's no dissents. There is one decision and then they've decided to fold kind of the idea of a dissent or a concurrence into these kind of notions of a minority of the panel, a paragraph that says like the minority of the panel felt differently about the reasonings for this. So that would be one thing if it was, you know, just getting read from the bench and that's all you heard about it and you let the reasoning of the opinion or the decision stand on its own. But you didn't. You then had everyone kind of off tweeting all of their thoughts about like everything and talking and doing. And I think that that's one of the things that I I even asked one of the people who came on my show that day, I was like, what's going on? Like, if (laughs) this is a court, like you wouldn't be doing a TV hit, like to talk about like what you, the conversation was like in chambers, that would be like totally verboten. So it is kind of like, well, are you a court? Because this sounds a lot like a court, but now you're not exactly comporting yourself as a court.
1: Yeah, and even, I don't know, the Supreme Court doesn't say, our big decision in this massive policy issue is coming out tomorrow at 9 a.m., everybody get ready, and then queue up its press hits. I keep coming back to that question, is this a, is it a court, right? I mean, we've all called it this Facebook Supreme Court. It seems right, sort of conceptually, Facebook has difficult decisions to make, it doesn't seem to want to make them or be accountable for them, so it's going to kick them over to this other place, they will take the hit and Facebook will presumably do what they say, but if you're going to be that kind of institution, there's just like a part of it where that's not how courts actually act, but just conceptually, I can't tell if this is a court or not.
2: Yeah, I think they're there with you. I think they're still deciding what they wanted to do. So, for example, I mean, just to kind of like put it right on the nose, they talked to me, a number of the board members, unconditioned of anonymity, talked to me for the New Yorker piece, explaining some of their first decisions and how they had reasoned through them and what they had thought. That was a level of access that a court would not usually grant to a reporter or anything else. And after that, they decided not to do that anymore. So there are changes that they're kind of they're making to their policy. It's not set in stone. Um, but I think that there's been a, a theory that I've heard a lot of people wondering, well, this is an incredibly well reasoned and rigorous legal opinion. Uh so this is most definitely seeming like a court, but the way that it's being talked about by the people who are making this decision is not quite the same as what we expect to see out of courts that traditionally we've seen in, you know, the United States.
1: What is the board's power over Facebook? What can the board make Facebook do specifically if it's unhappy with how Facebook is acting?
2: So the power that the board has over Facebook is incredibly narrow, but it is a small devolution of power that I've always argued is actually a lot bigger than it seems. For right now, for content that is removed or kept up on Facebook, the board, after a user has appealed it internally at Facebook, they can take that appeal and give it to the board. And if the board hears their case and makes a determination overturning Facebook's decision to keep down the content or put it back up, and it's only content, like single object content, it's not even pages, right? That was a special thing that the board considered for Trump. Users can't appeal their page takedowns right now. Facebook has agreed. To adhere to whatever the board's decision is on that specific piece of content. So my specific piece of content, my picture of my dog that gets accidentally removed from Facebook and the oversight board says it has to go back up, that has to go back up. But like if you had also posted a picture of my dog and it had gotten taken down, they have no obligation to restore your content. They have said that they will make efforts to restore similar content, but they've no promise. So this is that's it.
1: That's very narrow.
2: It's super narrow.
1: But they're not actually saying whether the policies are right or wrong. They're saying whether the enforcement policies are right or wrong.
2: Yes. But there is one other thing that they have obligated themselves to do, which is that when the Oversight Board makes public policy recommendations, Facebook has obligated itself to respond within 30 days to the Oversight Board's policy recommendations and whether they have been implemented or not, how they have been implemented, or if they weren't implemented, why not? And... This is this form of like weak form review, something that like um, Harvard Law Professor Mark Tishon kind of puts it this way, that is like the court calling on basically the executive, the legislative body to kind of come back in and fix their problem and then report back as to like how they ended up doing that. And so that is actually also a pretty important reputational pressure that the board can put on Facebook.
1: So this leads kind of right into this decision. The simplest way of understanding this decision is the Capitol riots happened. Trump posted a bunch of videos and posts that ostensibly encouraged people to stop acting badly at the Capitol, kind of supported it. Pretty messy, actually, in terms of just a straight interpretation of what Trump meant to have happen because of these videos and posts. Facebook takes them down. He tries again. They take him down and say, you're indefinitely banned from Facebook. This is the 6th and the 7th of January. A very chaotic time in America. All the other platforms are doing the same thing. Facebook then says, "Well, we got this board. We're going to kick the indefinite ban of Trump to the board to see if that was the right decision." And the board comes back and it I would just they say, "Fine, that that's it's fine for you to have indefinitely banned him. We're not going to write a policy for you on indefinite bans. Also, you have no policy on indefinite bans." And they seem very unhappy with Facebook. It's, there's actually a tone to me in this decision. That's like, don't put this on us. Yeah. You know, I think you could read that and come back to us in six months with a real decision and we'll tell you what to do. And that reads to me as kind of asserting its authority in a way, but it's also really, really narrow and kind of punts the issue.
2: I think it punts almost not at all, actually. Okay. I think that that's been one of the worst takes that's come out of this. It's not punting the issue at all because the issue is coming back. What they're saying is we're not going to carry water for you, Facebook. How I think about it is this, that one of the conceptions of what this, as we're talking about, what is this board? Is it a court? What is it? One of the questions is like, what type of level of court is it going to be? If it's a trial court, then it's like, then it's a fact finding body and it like does all of this work and maybe it makes it s- statutory inter- interpretations of rules. Or is it more like a Supreme Court or a Court of Appeals Court, which is going to actually review the law and whether the law matched the facts of the the thing. And what we see out of this decision is they are doing all three. I want to just hit on this really quickly. You talk about the fact that they like kind of lay out the events of Like the sixth and the seventh of January, and that those were really hectic, crazy times. Do you know, like, how, what a gift it is to have like a cogent, rigorous, well researched record of everything that we know happened on the front end, but matching that with. Facebook going on the record in the back end of what it was doing and how they were doing this. Like for the last 20, 15 years, like we've only had people like leak stuff out of the companies to tell us this type of thing. There has been no process for this. I was like a breath of fresh air to like have that to resource uh, going forward. But that's kind of a trial court type of hat. And so then they kind of get into this appellate court type of hat. And they're like, no, we're not a legislature for you. And our mandate is to see what your rules are. And whether or not they're consistent with your values and international human rights standards. And if you don't have a rule, we can't do that. And we're not going to make one for you because that's not our job. And we know what you'd like us to do. (laughs) We'd like us to basically make this somebody else's problem for you, but we're not going to do that. And we resent that you would even ask us. And I just thought it was a, a powerful, powerful response really rooted in the rule of law and procedure instead of getting sucked into the vortex of intractable online speech problems and the definition of newsworthiness and public figures and things like that is never going to get you anywhere.
1: Let me push back on that. I find myself really wondering what the limit of authority for this oversight board is. And I think they punted specifically because they said you need to come up with a proportionate response to Trump's actions and come back to us in six months with that response based on a new rule, which sounds like someone's got to reinstate Trump to Facebook and it's not going to be us. We're telling you that indefinite ban is not acceptable. There's no rule that says indefinite bans exist, but we're not going to tell you the term of indefinite ban the temptation to say that the board claimed for itself a greater authority by not making a decision is like very high. I see a lot of lawyers making that comparison to Marbury versus Madison at the Supreme Court. Like there's this big historical parallel that seems very tempting. But here, just like narrowly, it's they didn't want to be the ones to put Trump back on Facebook.
2: Yeah, I think that that's probably also right. So here's what I'll say about what the term proportionality means in an international human rights context, which is basically, I'm not sure that uh, like the idea of proportionality is that you have some type of uh, like ability to atone for your punishment, or you have some type of kind of proportionate response to whatever it is that the underlying problematic act that you've committed. And so it's not clear to me, it is possible to have a permanent suspension of someone's freedom of expression on a platform or ability to be on a platform and have it ever be consistent with international human rights standards. Like a permanent suspension is basically de facto disproportionate. But I think that it's a good argument because I do think that maybe you're right, but they want that type of finality of that decision. They want Facebook to have said that, that that's what's at stake and they don't want to have to say it for them. And like, maybe it's like punting the issue because they don't want to deal with it. But uh, they're going to have to deal with it one way or the other that, you know, when this comes back.
1: But this is where I think that the, the wishy-washiness really gets me. Shouldn't they have said you got to unban him until you come up with a rule that would properly ban him as opposed to this just like reflexive reaction to something bad's happening and he's making it worse and we're going to turn him off?
2: Yes, but I think that. It's so messy, but this is almost an interesting question of administrative law, which is that they defer to the decision of the underlying body, right? And so, like, they agreed that they made the right decision at the time to take him down and that, like, it's not clear that enough time has passed that that problem of imminence or dangerous organization affiliation or lauding dangerous organizations are passed, And so that was the other part was like, well, we can't make that decision. You have to do that. That part was the puntiest of all of it, I think. You were right. They could have basically reached some type of determination that was the opposite around the ban. Um, And that part, they absolutely did kind of put it back on Facebook to to do something one way or the other.
1: We're going to take a quick break. But when we return, we'll discuss whether legal frameworks should be applied to Facebook and other platforms at all.
0: support for decoder comes from sap business ai it's all over the internet ai this ai that your friend is turning his cat into a monet painting your co-worker used a chatbot to write a sonnet about pancakes ai isn't the stuff of science fiction anymore but it's also more than the gimmicks we see on a day-to-day basis if you're a business owner ai can offer real solutions to help you scale and innovate it might be time to check out sap business ai SAP Business AI can help you automate repetitive tasks, optimize inventory management and supply chain analysis, and identify opportunities for growth in your operations. SAP Business AI can help you with finance, sales, marketing, human resources, procurement, supply chain, and so much more, like guarding against fraud with AI-assisted anomaly detection, or receive data-driven prescriptive guidance at critical decision points. They even have a generative AI roadmap to help you discover upcoming and cutting-edge innovations for your business. Who knows what innovations are around the corner? Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com
3: slash AI. Support for this podcast comes from hymns It can be a challenge for men to speak up about their health, and oftentimes that's rooted in the fear of being vulnerable. But there are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves— Hims knows how you feel, which is why they are looking to provide you with the help you need, discreetly. Introducing Hims, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, It doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hims.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. hims.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hims.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription
1: plan. We're back with Kate Klonick. One of the things that really came up in this decision a lot was the board asked Facebook, have you ever applied this exception called the newsworthiness exception to Trump, where he's doing something that breaks your rules, but because he's the president and he's newsworthy, you're giving him a pass. And everyone assumed that Facebook, this was their justification. And Facebook said, no, we've never applied the newsworthiness exception, which A, I I know you have some strong feelings about newsworthiness as a concept, but B, that is a big surprise.
2: It's not a surprise because I don't think that they're lying. I think that they didn't technically apply their newsworthy exception to Trump. Trump is instead on a special list of newsworthy (laughs) people. (laughs) It's a different standard. And so they didn't lie. They're just like kind of they have different rules for different types of people for people that are high profile who people who have certain numbers of followers we've known this for a long time we've never had access to this list we don't know how it's administered we don't know like what goes into deciding content that those individuals say necessarily and so this is like this is one of the best parts of this is kind of you have to tell us how this all works Because this doesn't make sense to us. And it seems like you made it up as you went along. And so this isn't a standard at all. And so we can't even review it. I think that this is great because, I mean, I've written, they wrote a paper in 2018 called Facebook v. Sullivan, which kind of like was supposed to be a little play on like New York Times v. Sullivan, which established the public figure and newsworthiness kind of considerations in First Amendment law. And it toyed with this idea of like, well, how are they defining, how are they possibly defining newsworthiness and public figures Um, And I talked to a number of former policy people that had left the company in 2013 specifically around this newsworthiness question, because they thought that this was an intractable standard that could never be consistently applied and was always going to be a question of newsworthy to who. Mm -hmm. And that was always going to be a group of people in Silicon Valley. And that was bullshit. And then a group of people that ended up being the winners that just wanted to use it as a As a way to just kind of like ad hoc make determinations on a case by case basis, I love that it's coming up, and that this is something that the board raised because I think it's just absolutely fascinating
1: that special list that Trump was on we we don't know how like how big it is, right, but trump his his relationship to Facebook and to Twitter he's always sort of gotten his own space, right and it's always been nuclear to moderate Trump in any way, shape or form until it crossed the threshold of January 6th, is this decision from the board saying you can't have those kinds of soft exceptions anymore? You have to treat everybody the same. Or is it, if you're going to have exceptions, you have to be clear about them?
2: I would say the latter, but I don't know. They might say that it does not comport with international human rights law and like principles of law to have two different sets of speech rules for people.
1: Even if you're the president, of the United States.
2: Even if you're the president of the United States, or they might say that you are allowed to have different classes of type of things, but you have to be consistent about what classes people are in and you have to like tell us what it means to be put into this class. I mean, so like one of the things that I wrote about with some of my research is at some point they used to define public figures by the number of like Google hits you had, or like the number of times you showed up in Google News. And like they would use Google to determine whether or not someone was a public figure or a combination of that and how many people followed you on the platform. But these are standards that are, they they changed all the time. I have no idea where that standard is now because we've had no transparency into into how it changed or like where it's gotten to. And so- I don't know. It's just I am excited for this conversation to have gotten to such a sophisticated place finally after, you know, the last 10 years of nonsense. And I'm really looking forward to it.
1: There's just a part of this where Facebook gets to pretend it's the most important thing in the world all the time. And it's created this board. And here we are talking about it as though it's a Supreme Court and sort of right next door is Twitter. And they're like, yeah, we're just banning the guy. He's gone. Like, we're not telling you if he's ever coming back maybe he will never come back. Like you're just never going to know. And there's no process by which Trump or any, uh, any of his team can appeal that decision because Twitter is a private company. It's their platform. And they can do what they want. Facebook is trying to create this other thing that provides moral, legal, spiritual justification for a snap decision. I, I just can't tell if, if that is correct or whether it's fundamentally distracting or whether everyone should have a giant oversight board?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the, all of those things are the things to be thinking about. I think that that's all I've been thinking about for the last two years, but I've been by myself.
1: Yeah. Well, that's why. That's why I want to talk to you.
2: So this is so much nicer than just like sitting in like <laughs> my apartment, staring at my dog, being like, "Why won't you tell me what to do about the Facebook oversight board?" <laughs> so I think that that's completely correct. So the the way that I think about this is that Facebook has basically chosen a path of governance. They are in, and so is Twitter, in an intractable kind of situation in which they are forced to make these terrible content moderation decisions uh, that govern and have a f- huge like, public ramifications and that compromise human rights, like freedom of expression and safety. And at the same time, they're privately held companies and that they are privately held companies that operate transnationally and in the exchange of information. And so they are basically they are a pretty big deal. They're pretty much outside in strength and power, outside the ability of any one country to shut them down everywhere. Like no, not even the United States could shut down Facebook or Twitter everywhere. They could shut it down in the United States briefly if they kind of really wanted to. But that's about it. And so I think that this is like you kind of have to galaxy brain yourself a little bit and make yourself go to a new place of like, what is the world going to look like if entities like this exist and they're governing public rights and we need to kind of figure out a way to democratize or hold accountable private companies governing public rights, especially when those public rights like freedom of expression are rights that you have traditionally accepted from government control because governments are traditionally bad at telling us what to do with our speech and dangerous when they tell us what to do with their speech. So it's like hard to make government the solution to this either. And so I think that Facebook chose a governance path with like the oversight board. And I think that they hoped that they would be shoving off these substantive decisions. What we saw yesterday was that that didn't work out quite the way that they thought, or at least it isn't so far. I mean, there's a couple of things that can happen out of this. The oversight board could be a total distraction. We never get anywhere with it. It gets disbanded in five years or whatever. But at least it was a pretty noble experiment and gave us kind of a new valence or way of thinking about how to solve some of these problems. The other thing is that it could take hold in the idea of people being entitled to boards like this or being able to avail themselves of boards like this becomes something that is either mandated and regulated by governments. Right now Canada is c- contemplating mandating the creation of oversight boards within their country for these speech platforms or it's something that the public simply demands of these speech platforms and they have to kind of put them in place themselves and Twitter gets forced into it because it becomes kind of the next wave of kind of how we deal with with platforms. I have no idea. I I think about this all the time, but I think that at least for now, it looks like the Oversight Board is pretty serious. It c- really could have been people taking their checks and rubber stamping Facebook's decisions, and it could have been nothing. But a 40-page decision that cites to international human rights law and outs Facebook for not answering questions that were posed to it after it created this board to begin with, I think that this is a pretty serious, well, right now, it looks like a pretty serious group and decision
1: so the board submits a bunch of questions to Facebook as part of its Trump decision-making process. Facebook just says, we're not going to answer seven of your questions. Is Facebook allowed to just not answer the board's questions?
2: Uh, see, like, I love this. This is like people, my students are being like, is this legal? Can this, can they do this? Like, and I'm like, anything is like legal or not legal until like someone <laughs> tells you not to do it. It's like, I don't, can they do this? Like, Well, they just did. And like, I don't know what we do to stop them. I mean, what we do to stop them is the board tells them they can. And the board did that as much as they could. And they made it public. And it's not been well received that they didn't answer those questions. And I think that there is probably definitely a number of people at Facebook right now that are panicked over how to kind of move forward with more requests from the board in the future. But if you think about it from the perspective of if, if a government was called before a court to answer questions and the government said, I'm really sorry, court, we can't tell you, it just wouldn't fly. You'd be in contempt of court. Like, that's like the end of that. <laughs> I think that the interesting thing here is that it ends up being a, a real question of like legal realism and public pressure and reputation for the company. Like how bad it was going to look if they spent $130 million in two years and 20 brilliant people's time to do this, and then they don't pay any attention to it.
1: One of the things that strikes me as you kind of describe that process is the United States Supreme Court likes to say that it makes very narrow decisions, but it actually has sweeping authority over American public life, right? Should our schools be segregated or not? The Supreme Court said not. And they kind of make these decisions that have sweeping impact over our lives, and they actually kind of restructure society. The board's power here is limited to, well, you took something down, but you should put it back up. And it seemed like in this decision, they want the additional power to say, how does your algorithm work? What ha- what do you see your algorithm promoting or disincentivizing or you know otherwise modifying in the conversation it has on Facebook? And how does your business model plug into that algorithm and have you make decisions about it? And they just don't have that power. And it seems like they really want it.
2: Completely. I I also got that out of the opinion. I also got that I was in the House of Lords testifying about the oversight board with Alan um, Rusbridger, who's on the board, former editor in chief of The Guardian. He basically said that in his House of Lords testimony was that they were coming after the algorithm. And I was like, that's interesting. That's like not (laughs) that. That wasn't in the (laughs) the charter. Uh, And so uh, it was kind of foreshadowed. But I saw that in the opinion as well. And I think that it's really interesting. And I think that it is Absolutely the right question because as as Jack Balkin says, um, is the crown jewels of how all of this works and what the real power source of Facebook is. I know for a fact because I've read the founding documents so many times that it is not contemplated at all that they'll have any type of visibility into that. But I've always argued that like that doesn't mean anything. Like that like just for the same reasons you're talking about it not being legal, there's no reason that they can't use their public pressure and authority and sway which is really all that they, it is, is like to, to start asking these hard questions. And this was always, I think that this is pretty soon to do it, but I think that it's great that they're going in that direction.
1: We're going to take one more break. When we return, I'll ask Kate what she thinks will happen with the Trump decision and more importantly, what the future of oversight boards as a whole might look like.
3: Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow. ServiceNow.
1: We're back with Decoder. You know, the connection between maybe five years from now, every company will want an oversight board, or governments will demand that you have such a contraption connected to your company. But if your expertise and your precedent is all about Facebook's algorithm, then how on earth can you connect that to TikTok or connect that to YouTube, which have wildly different business models, wildly different algorithmic inputs and outputs?
2: Oh, you don't. And I would actually say that that would be the worst possible outcome is to have one oversight board.
1: Well, I think this one kind of wants to be the one oversight board. They don't even call themselves the Facebook oversight board. They're just the oversight board.
2: That's true. I thought that that was weird. And I honestly, you want to know why I think that they did that? I think that they all are so like the name Facebook is so toxic (laughs) that like I think that they don't want to be associated with it by name. And I don't think that they want to have power over all of the different platforms. And so this is something I read about in the Yale Law Journal article that I went into, which is the different ways that this could play out. And one of the ways is that basically the trust corporation that I mentioned before, that Twitter dumps $130 million into that and forms their own oversight board right? To apply Twitter's terms of service and Twitter's community standards to whatever it is that Twitter wants to set those at, right? Or Twitter makes its own, which is just as easy, I think, Twitter makes its own trust and its own oversight board and endows that and does their own thing. And finally, the last thing is like, I think it would be terrible for freedom of expression globally if we started to have one set of like merged standards that came together that were all the same industry standard and that you couldn't have nudity on one platform and no nudity on another platform or something like that, if that's what you decided. I think the differentiation is key to like preserving freedom of expression. But I think that you're exactly right. That's one of the things that is, was specifically contemplated by Zuckerberg when he started to create these documents.
1: Right. I think he said, well, maybe someday other companies will use our board.
2: I mean, he literally made the documents so that you could like control F, replace all Facebook (laughs) for Twitter. Like they're, they're really meant to be like usable, like breakouts, like for other companies.
1: I mostly agree with you that it would be bad to have one weird public quasi private entity controlling all speech in America. It just seems bad on its face. On the flip side, there's just an enormous amount of instability in like people's expectations of what they can do on services. The First Amendment kind of means that it's a free-for-all, which is good. The government can't make speech regulations. But the idea that Twitter will take something down and Facebook won't and YouTube will demonetize a creator for doing pranks that are too dangerous and TikTok, like people accuse TikTok, like literally the algorithm of TikTok, of being racist all the time. I hear from the audience all the time that I don't know what's going to happen. Right? Like, Where are the rules these platforms have to abide by from a baseline. And I think that's how you get to, you know, this like very popular sort of political posturing that we should just impose the First Amendment and they've got to do the fir- whatever the First Amendment says, which is somewhat nonsensical.
2: It's not somewhat. It is like literally like nonsense gobbledygook. <laughs> like, it doesn't like, make sense.
1: But I under I'm like very sympathetic to where that comes from. Right. That you're going to go seek out some other authority that has this like spiritual place in American life. And then you have to, everyone has to just do that. OK, like I I understand the impulse, but I can't re- I don't know how to square it with these are different companies with different roles, different algorithms. And yeah, if Twitter wants to be a little looser with its nudity standards than Facebook, that is actually a good thing for speech in America.
2: I understand the impulse. <laughs> I'm going to be really mean about people for a second. Like, <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, <laughs> I understand the impulse to stop, to turn off your brain and take the easiest possible solution that gives you like absolutely meaningless results and won't have any type of procedural like fairness over time. Sure. Like that seems great. Like we did that with newsworthiness. Newsworthiness is a circularly defined concept that people rely on all the time and actually means nothing. And it's time we finally started talking about that. And just because Supreme Court uses the language and circularly defines it, still doesn't mean that it's not a problem philosophically to rely on that for a standard uh, to police people's speech on. I really do understand the notion that people want there to be some answer out there that is going to solve this problem. But here's the thing. You just were talking about this in the U.S. in the First Amendment. Facebook's global user base is 7% in the U.S., Mostly it's everywhere else. This isn't even other people's standards. Facebook talks about itself as a community. It's not a community. It is like a couple billion communities all overlapping on top of each other that have almost like nothing, like they have nothing that necessarily binds them together. A community is defined by a group of individuals that have a shared sense of norms and values and responsibilities. And there's... No global community that can even agree on whether we should allow female breasts online, let alone whether or not to allow, you know, when a Mexican cartel has like a beheading, whether or not to like let someone put that on a platform or whether it's too violent or it's gore or whether we should do something in between. This is one of the other things that I'm excited about about this decision is because I think it starts to go to a place that is so much more useful and rigorous than how we've been having this conversation for the last 10, 15 years, which is that we are, it is time to stop letting people make these like, oh, he's a public figure, oh, he's a political figure, oh, he's newsworthy, like types of arguments and stop there. It's time to get to the next level and dig deeper and figure out what it is we value and mean by that. And to your point about all this stuff about like TikTok being racist, Twitter making like arbitrary decisions, all of this stuff, those have grounded intuitive roots in procedural justice and the rule of law that we can start to tie some of these things back to. And if we could start to have procedures around some of this stuff, then once we apply the substantive rules, they won't seem so arbitrary and capricious. And these companies won't seem so unaccountable.
1: What's interesting about that is we keep coming back to laws and courts which are fundamentally governmental functions and powers. There's, at least in this country, there's just not a way to have a speech court like that. So these all have to be corporate powers and enforcement mechanisms. At least here in America in 2021, I cannot see everyone coming together and agreeing that this corporation, this LLC, has the power over speech on one of the largest platforms and that its decisions are going to, carry the psychic weight of a Supreme Court decision.
2: Well, I mean, like to your point, like pretty much like the U.S. courts like have passed the buck on this all the time. I mean, this is the same. They don't make decisions on substantive nature of viewpoint discrimination. They just say there can or cannot be viewpoint discrimination. And this is how we're going to determine this. I think that what you're going to see is that Facebook's going to still get to substantively decide what its policies are, but they're just going to have to be fair and consistent and proportionate and how they enforce them. And that right now, that is the biggest hurdle that people who have worked around content moderation are the most upset about. Or is not that, like, Trump comes up or comes down when he incites violence or, like, lauds a dangerous org. It's that there is a different rule for you and for me and for Trump and for Alex Jones. And that we don't know what any of those decisions are, any of those rules are people are constantly having unfair outcomes. I think it was like a 80% error rate on content moderation decisions. <laughs> like I just like that's nuts. Like can we just like work on getting that lower for a while? Like never <laughs> mind keeping like Trump down. Like that's a lot of people that are censored. At the end of the day, this is really about just establishing some procedures. The substantive decisions, you're right. Everyone's going to fight about them. No one's going to be happy about them. There's lots of laws people don't agree with now too. But they feel protected by the fact that there's transparency and accountability of how they're enforced. Well, kind of, depending on you know, depending on plenty of other systemic things. Uh, but that's kind of something that I think that we can get into once we have this baseline.
1: You mentioned the error rate of moderation decisions. Connect this spectrum for me. We've done a lot of coverage of individual moderators at Facebook and their working conditions and how they feel and the fact that they have. Fundamentally bad jobs and often get PTSD afterwards. How should a contractor working in a Facebook moderation shop feel about the oversight board? What is the relationship that they should have? And what is the relationship they have now?
2: Oh, I think that they should be very excited about this. And in fact, one of the most interesting series of calls I got yesterday or texts that I got yesterday from people that were inside the company, inside Facebook, um, were from people at the as I would call it in the factory floor or in the policy shop, that were very happy because they had agitated for these types of changes for a long time and felt like this gave them the clout and authority that they needed to put forward this like rigorous new agenda and not have like a series of ad- trying to rework the same terrible ad hoc rules. And so I think that that's going to filter down to content moderators and their job being easier. I will say that like I think that it continues to be something that we need to talk about and the fact that we are outsourcing this labor in this way and that, that we are like we're using individuals to cleanse things and we still talk about it like there is this you talk about the algorithm both either from like data that we're getting people are generating from even being on the site and where their eyeballs are going to people making the content moderation decisions i think that the probably the algorithm is less sophisticated than we think
1: Inside of Facebook, one thing that we've heard a lot about is the content moderation shop <laughs> is connected to their political operations shop, that the lobbyists of Facebook are the people who write the rules for, for speech on Facebook, and that is deeply problematic. That's like gestured at, in this opinion, but they've now kicked it back to that same shop, which you know has just faced any number of controversies over the years. Is that something that just, like, Facebook needs to change to make all of this more credible?
2: I've heard that they're starting to. I've heard that some other people who have heard this, so this is, like, getting deep into kind of hearsay and, like, just kind of rumor mill of inside, inside Silicon Valley. But I think that they are definitely wanting to devolve product and policy more distinctly. I think that that's been been happening for a while. And I think the oversight board is a huge part of that. But I think that also that they are trying to get away from the idea that Joel Kaplan is in charge of so much and doing yeah. so much and trying to put more onto Nick Clegg. And I think that like the New York times article that came out today is like kind of part of that. I think that there is a, a desire to kind of set Nick up more for being you know a policy head. I think that's maybe it's too little too late, but I have no idea.
1: So we're looking at this whole sweep of, the oversight board being created, this big decision being referred to it, it asserting itself and saying, no, you actually have to make a policy, kicking it back to Facebook in six months, they'll send it back to the oversight board. What should regular Facebook users be looking for next from this process?
2: One of the things that's been lost in all of the nonsense Around Trump. And honestly, I know that people are like, the oversight board is a distraction. And I feel like Trump is a distraction. (laughs) (laughs) Trump is a distraction. I mean, for always and for all time, he has been a distraction from so much. But uh, also from Modi and from Bolsonaro and all of the other leaders that are still in power, that are threatening and still on Facebook, I think that this is just one moment. So I think the next thing that users can expect is that whatever happens coming out of this next six months is going to have a huge um, impact on other types of world leaders. The other thing I was going to say is that one of the things that's been lost in all of the um, emphasis on the Trump suspension is that in the last couple of weeks, Facebook actually had implemented something that they had promised to do for eventually, but we never knew how soon or when, which was to start putting their decisions to keep up content that had been flagged by other users into the jurisdiction of the board on appeal. So this means that, like, and if I find something that you said offensive and I flag it to Facebook as being, a, you know, lauding dangerous organizations or inciting violence, and they say, no, it's fine, we decided to leave it up, I can now appeal that decision. And I think that that's a huge deal because it puts the board into both the role of being watchers of the censors and being this now being the censors themselves, basically being like, no, that speech is too harmful. It has to come down. And I think that that's actually going to be a really weird thing for a lot of these people to do, because I think a lot of these people are used to being like, no, that has to go back up for the sake of freedom of expression. I think it's going to be a lot harder to take down people, certain people's speech uh, when it's harmful.
1: Yeah. And I I think you actually see that in the Trump decision where they, as they keep referencing the minority, they keep saying the minority would have gone farther. Yep. That balance to me seems uh, incredibly fascinating. Kate, I suspect we're going to have you back on the show a lot as the Facebook oversight board continues. I don't know. It's metamorphosis into something credible. Thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was really, well, it's really fun. (laughs)
1: Thank you again to Kate Klonick for taking the time to talk today and thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at the or hit me up directly. I'm at reckless on Twitter. If you like decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of the verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Liam James, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.
0: Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Imagine the most tedious tasks you have at work. Is it making all those manual adjustments to your weekly spending reports? Or sending essentially the same emails over and over again? If you're looking for ways to innovate your business, it might be time to consider SAP Business AI. With dozens of potential integrations to optimize sales, procurement, finance, human resources, and more, SAP Business AI may be able to improve your business operations inside and out. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI.